So we are in Zephaniah. This is our third week of Zephaniah. And uh, we've had, uh, you know, we've had some, some really good, even though we've only had two, some really good information come from Zephaniah and some good challenges. And so as we get to part three tonight, uh, we'll jump into chapter two. Now, most of chapter two is on your handout, if not all of chapter two. So, uh, But there will be several, several scriptures that I will reference tonight. Uh, so if you, if, if you want to jot those down, I'll try to repeat them as I mention them, uh, but make sure you can put those where they go. And then again, the entire back of your handout is a place for you to make notes and use that uh, for your uh, personal notes there. So as we, we talk about Zephaniah, so the book of Zephaniah, as is with most of the Old Testament prophets, I want to suggest to you tonight is actually a declaration of love from God. Now, if you read Zephaniah, it doesn't read like a book of love, right? You look at it and say, uh, sounds like a lot of people are getting in trouble and God is not happy. Uh, but it is a warning to the nation of Judah that they would do what God intended for them to do from the very beginning. You see, I have two children, and I often warn my kids not to do things that are dangerous for them or that are not good for them. And I do that because I love them, right? I remember years ago, we were in Virginia, and uh, Natalie was six, our oldest at the time. Uh, our oldest, and at the time she was six. And then Noah, our youngest, was three at the time, I believe, two or three. Uh, and we were at a car dealership, and we were looking at cars, and so we were in the showroom, and we were inside, and they had a car in there. And so Natalie was six, and of course, by the time you're six, you know everything. And so she didn't need any instruction or anything. You know, she's very independent, so she was, you know, going to do her own thing. And so she, she's going, and she's looking over the side of the car. And so, of course, we said, don't touch the car. That's a bad idea. And so little Noah's, you know, bebopping around with his passy, you know, he's running around. Well, we're talking to the sales guy, and all of a sudden, we, you know, we told them, don't touch anything, leave everything alone. Well, from the other side of the car, we hear a blood-curdling scream. I mean, you know, just like as worse as you can be. And so we run around the side of the car to see little Noah's hand stuck in the door, and the door is closed shut. And so Natalie, of course, Noah wasn't old enough or tall enough, had opened the door, and Noah stuck his hand in there, and smack, she closed the door right on his hand. And so he had flat fingers for a little while, uh, but they weren't broken because kids' bones are very nimble. And uh, so thankfully they weren't broken. But, you know, that's just a silly example of the warnings that we give our kids. But why did I tell my kids, hey, look, if you want to have some fun, stick your hand in the door and slam it shut. No, of course I didn't say that because I love them and I don't want them to experience pain. And so it's the same for us that God loves us. And if He didn't love us, He would not warn us. And so this warning that we have in the book of Zephaniah is a clear warning of things to come. And then God gives a call to action. So we're going to reverse everything tonight. So he has this information or this warning, and then there's this call to action. You see, so often as it is with our walk with God, as Zephaniah has already pointed out, we become very complacent with the world around us and the actions that are within us, and we drift away, and we drift into what, what becomes 
natural for us. Now, if you remember the first week I talked about, I referenced complacency, and then last week Pastor Tony talked at length about complacency and how we, we allow ourselves to drift into that because it's very natural. And so we often ignore in our own lives the very subtle warnings that God has for us. You know, the will of God is uh, very clear in the rearview mirror, right? So we can look back and we can say, oh, that's, that's what God wanted me to do. But the will of God is not as clear in the present when we are not listening and willing to pursue what God wants, not what we want. And that's where the nation of Judah finds themselves, is they're in the present, but they're pursuing what they want instead of what God wants. You see, to follow Jesus is often a very unnatural thing to do. I mean, think about it. To forgive someone when you're wronged, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, that's not natural. To love your uh, neighbor as yourself, to love your enemies, that's a supernatural act of God. It is. Because we keep scores, humans, our flesh is, uh, strives for personal comfort, our, our flesh strives for complacency. So it's not natural for us to do that. And so we have to be aware of the warnings. Oftentimes they are subtle warnings that God gives us so that we can be aware of what it is that God has in store for us. You see, here we find Judah, because of their sin, had become without shame. Now it is you know, for the last couple of years, I feel like we've said the same things over and over. Uh, but it is the same with the culture that we live in today. Sin is no longer shameful. It is renamed. Uh, the face of Judah is no longer blushing. Judah is no longer embarrassed uh, by their idolatry. If you remember from the first week, they're no longer embarrassed by that. They're no longer ashamed of the fact that Yahweh God is not the only sole primary God in their life that they worship, if you'll remember from the first week, Molech and other deities that they had cannot, you know, come up with in their own minds. And so what happened to the nation of Judah is that they had hardened their sensitivity to sin. Now, that's a very dangerous place to be. You see, in our own lives, in a good barometer of your relationship with God is how does your heart respond to the presence of sin in your life? In other words, are you sensitive to those things? When you sin, when, when someone else sins, when you are around sin, when you are exposed to sin, fill in the blank, right? When sin is present, either yours or others, how does your heart respond to that? How does your spirit respond to that? You see, we become so calloused in a, quote, sinful world that it becomes commonplace for us to be around sin. And we become calloused to the sin that is around us, and our heart becomes jaded to those things. And that's not what God intends for us. And it's not what God had intended for the nation of Judah. And so what needed to happen for the nation of Judah, now if you remember, Israel is no longer present in this picture. It is only Judah. And Judah needed to be awakened. Now we could stop here and spend the rest of the time talking about the fact that in our own lives, we need to be awakened. Right, that we need to be awakened to the realities around us. We need to be awakened to the why of the realities around us. And we need to be awakened to the reality of who is within us, right? That, you know, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world today, 1 John 4, 4. But do we live that reality out? And I, I would suggest that oftentimes we don't, and I would suggest that the reason that we don't most oftentimes is because of our insensitivity to the sin that is around us. And so what God is doing to the nation of Judah 
what I would suggest that God wants to do for our nation and for, for those that are asleep is to awaken His people. And so there's a few things, a few thoughts that I want to share with you tonight as we begin to look at this uh, Scripture here in Zephaniah. So as we begin to look, uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that God is not looking forward. God is already looking back. God is not looking forward. God is already looking back. Now, we are not going to exhaust this topic. This is mind-bending. But I do want to present it to you tonight as best as we can in the few minutes that we'll talk about it. So when we think about time, we think about time in the confines of human understanding, right? There is an end to you. There is an end to me. And we are aware of that. And we know that there are certain activities that can instantly bring that about, right? I can, there's a lot of things I can do that I will no longer be alive. And there's a lot of things that you can do. And so we, we don't understand eternity in terms of timelessness. And so one of the things that's hardest for me to grasp as a human is that I will live forever in eternity. Because in my mind, and in your mind, there's an end, right? You know, I'm 43, and so there's things that I used to do that I can't do as well anymore. And I know as the clock ticks, those, that list will grow longer, right? I'm not going to be able to do as many things. And eventually, I'm going to pass away, and I'm going to step into eternity. But when I do that, that's when my life begins, But I don't completely grasp the concept of forever because there's nothing forever in my life, right? My shoes wear out and and my clothes wear out and my food spoils and so on and so forth. On and on, even my hair fell out. Imagine that, right? And so on and on and on, you, you see this picture of humanity that doesn't grasp eternity, And so here's God talking to the nation of Judah, and he's saying, listen, if you guys don't straighten up, (coughs) excuse me, if you guys don't straighten up in the future, very soon, here's what's about to happen. And it's been the same thing over and over and over through all the Old Testament prophecies. They're prophesying about what? What is about to happen. No one is standing up and saying, hey, you remember 38 years ago when this happened? Well, here's what that meant. No, they're declaring in the future, here's what's about to happen. You look at, I mean, the list is, is, is all of them in the Old Testament. And so here's God looking at uh, forward of what is about to happen for Judah. And Zechariah, uh, Zephaniah rather, is proclaiming that, but he is proclaiming it in a past fashion. Now, it's happening in the future, but Zephaniah is looking back through the lens of God and saying, here is what it will look like when it happens. And so God is warning of what he knows will be the outcome of their actions. So here's what we need to understand about God in this. God is not reacting to what is happening. Okay, God was not surprised when the Babylonians attacked Judah. He was not surprised by that. He foretold that that would happen. Remember in week one, Josiah uh, repented for the nation and they had this great revival. And not everyone was genuine in their uh, turning to God. And so Zephaniah shows up when young Josiah is there and he begins to proclaim, you know, this wrath of God that is about to come. And so Josiah repents and God tells Josiah, what? remember, go back and listen to the first week if you weren't here. He told Josiah, okay, I'll wait until you pass away before I do it. And four years after Josiah died was when the Babylonians took over, right? And so here is 
God not reacting to what is happening, but he is, what he's doing is he is foretelling what is going to happen and what he will do in those moments because God is not confined by space and time. You should really spend some time thinking about that, and what it will do is it will expand your view of God. Because in your own mind and in my own mind, we're not capable of, of encompassing or capacitating that thought. This is what the Bible says about this. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So what God is saying is before anything happens, I already know. He's not confined by the limitations of time. You know, I'm super busy, and I've got lots of things. And every day, I've got a lot of things I have to do every day. And oftentimes, I wake up and think, same thing today. i got to do this, and, I got, and I've got all these things, and I've got to get this done, and I've got this busy weekend coming up, and so on and so forth. And in my mind, there's 24 hours that I have today and tomorrow to accomplish, and I'm trying to cram all this stuff in. God is not doing that. God is not doing that. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, remember the things, the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah is that he sees beyond what you see. He already knows how it will end. And yet, to the nation of Judah, he's saying, here is the end. Now I'm looking backwards. Daniel's the same way. Ezekiel, same way. Isaiah, same way. And so what, what is being declared here is the transcendence or the eminence of God. That God transcends space and time. And that, that God is present in creation, in the eminence of God. He's present in creation, but He is very distinct from creation in that He's not limited by it. You see, in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, the Bible says that they should, Paul's writing to, uh, he's talking to the people in uh, Athens. He says that people should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. So the presence of God is available everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. God is everywhere, and so He's not confined by time. He's also not confined by space. He is forward-looking. You see, the past, so oftentimes we believe this, the past does not determine the future, the past does not determine the future. How do I know that? Well, we know it and we believe this because here's one simple reason is you're not who you used to be. You're not who you used to be. If you're here today and you're a believer, what's happened is that the old man passed away and all things became new, right? That's what salvation is. And so in your life, who you used to be, you know, Paul said in Ephesians, of, some, of, of who you were, you were this, you were this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, of some of such you were. All of these things that we were, we no longer are as followers of Jesus, right? Right? We have a few followers in here? All right, good. 
So he's not far from each of us. So God is there. And so this past that God was present in, in our sinfulness, and then we became saved because of Jesus. Now we are not who we once were, which proves that the past didn't determine the future, or none of us would spend eternity in heaven because we were all born what? Lost, separated from God. So we don't have to allow the things in our past to determine our future. So the past does not determine the future. The other side of the coin is the reality that the future has already determined the past. Think about that. The future has already determined the past. You you look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel says in Daniel 12 that in the end times that knowledge will increase. Think about the last 100, 125 years. Knowledge will increase and people will move to and fro. Again, think about the last 100 years. I can be anywhere on the globe within 24 hours. I can go anywhere I want to go within one day. So if we're not as close to the end times as we're ever going to be, I don't know if we're going to, right? I mean, this is the time, right? You look at all the prophecies, we're as close as possible. Now, it could be another 100 years. I'm definitely not declaring to know that answer. I'm just saying this, is that the future has already decided when that will be. There's a day and there's a time when the trumpet will sound and the sky will split and God will gather his people home, right? That's when it will happen, when God is already predetermined. As a matter of fact, if you spend time reading Revelation, studying Revelation, what you'll find is that it's all mapped out. It's all laid out exactly what will happen in the end times. You see, the future has already determined the past. How do we know that? Well, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, which again, by the way, was a a contemporary of Zephaniah. He said, this is what God said to, to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. He knew Jeremiah before Jeremiah was Jeremiah. What does that tell us? That the future determines What we see is the past. So here's Jeremiah born into existence, and God, you know, as though God says, hey, all right, we've been waiting for you here, Jeremiah. Welcome to humanity, right? Isn't that a cool thought? So here's God knowing Jeremiah even before Jeremiah was born. And so this changes things for us. This this radically changes. If you really think about this, God is not looking forward. He's already looking back. What does this change for us? Well, it changes how we look at the present. I mean, think about it. It changes how we view our failures. If I know that God is not looking uh, back, that he's he's not looking forward, rather, that he's always looking back, it changes how I view my failures. Because it means that he already knew what was going to happen. That he's looking back to the things that happened in my life, and he's not surprised by those things. And it also changes how, I, how we think or how I think that God sees my failures. If God is looking back, he's not looking forward, then he already knows what's going to happen. And it did not derail God's plan for my life. Listen to that. You cannot derail God's plan for your life. So oftentimes, and I'll be honest with you, in legalism, the thought has crossed my mind many times when I was younger, is can I out God's plan for my life? Right? Can I do something to jack it up? 
Can I do something to mess it up? Well, is God sovereign or is he not sovereign, right? I mean, there's some questions in there. And so if I'm following God and I realize that God is looking back, that that God already knows the future, then it changes how I see the present. But it also changes, it also changes how we see our future. You remember the God that's in the future, Yahweh God that's looking back, it changes how we see that future. How does it change that? Well, we can know and trust in a God who holds the future in his hands. That we can face our future with confidence. That we can face our future with trust. And how about this? We can face our future with peace. Right? Because I'm not wrestling with God over me doing the right thing. Remember what Pastor Tony said Sunday morning? That eternity will not be negated by a technicality. Remember that? That God's not sitting in heaven just waiting for you to mess up. And then, you know, like uh, when you were a kid, when you were playing Uh, You know, Simon says, and you did the wrong thing. Simon didn't say, you're out. That's not what God is doing. And so it it changes the way we see the future. So I don't have to worry about how things are going to go or if things will work out. God already knows that. And so all I have to do is trust his plan and trust God's purposes for my life. You see, the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah was in captivity, in Babylonian captivity, when Jeremiah writes this popular verse, many of you know it, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. A nation in captivity is hearing these words. How, that, that shows that God is looking back. He already knows what will happen. And so in the midst of their pain, God was declaring their future. And so through the lens of humans viewing the past, we can know that God is trustworthy. As Zephaniah is declaring the things that will come to pass and those things do come to pass, we as believers, as we read Zephaniah and other parts of Scripture, every part of Scripture, we can say, well, I know what the past looks like. But because of the trustworthiness of God, I can believe and trust and rest in what the future will look like. Amen? You see, the the exactness of how God's Word was fulfilled in the past gives us valuable clues as to what God will do in the future. We can know the character and the nature of God and how God responds to, to His people and how God responds to sin and how God responds to His purposes and how God responds to the enemy, right? We can know that because of what Scripture teaches us and how God has responded to that. And so as, as uh, Zephaniah in the last few verses of chapter 1 is dealing with the nation of Judah, He prophesies similar wrath on her equally idolatrous neighbors. As we'll see here in verses, picking up in verse 4, God is the God of all nations. And these nations led Judah to stumble away from God. And so God is about to declare all of the things of which they will receive that he will punish them for. And Zephaniah, we pick up in verse 4. Zephaniah chapter 2, pick up in verse 4, says, For Gaza shall be destroyed, and Ashkelon shall be uh, come a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! 
The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. You, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze. And the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at the evening. For the Lord, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them, and he will restore their fortunes. Verse 8 says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revelings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. They shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations." You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. So we read this wrathful language from Zephaniah. And Zephaniah is declaring all of the things that will happen to the nations that are surrounding the nation of Judah. We see uh, God speaks about the nation to the west, to Judah's west, Philistia. We see Moab and Amnon to the east. We see Ethiopia to the south. And to the north, we see Assyria. So I began to think about these nations. You know, what is God showing us, right? You know, the nation of Judah experienced uh, from the north the attack of Assyria, and they ended up, you know, taking them into captivity and, uh, you know, basically annihilating the nation. Well, what does that mean for us? You know, should we be looking to the north, right? Are we looking to the east and the west? God, what are you, what are you showing us here? Well, not only does God look back, he's not looking forward. The second thing that we see here in this scripture is that human reasoning ends with human results. Human reasoning ends with human results. Now, I can guarantee you any time that you've tried to reason or logic your way through an equation, you ended up with a result that was logical, right? Two weeks ago, we started this series, I referenced the song Crazy People uh, by Casting Crowns, and I said that God does things through people that often looks crazy. Remember that? And so here we see human reasoning ends with human results. So I'm going to need you to think with me. You know, tonight's very cerebral, okay? So we're thinking through, to, to, through what Zephaniah is showing. So the first thing that he talks about is the land of the Philistines, Okay, where did the land of the Philistines come from? I spent a long time thinking about this. I want you to hear me out. Where did the land of the Philistines come from? The Philistines were descendants of Ham. Now, Ham is who? He's Noah's son, right? Noah, the flood, you know, you know the, the whole story. And so here is Noah gets all of his kids on the boat, and then, you know, the flood, and then now new nation, right? And so here's Ham. And, and here's, here's the descendants of the Philistines that come from his son, okay? And so they came from the west. I'm not sure if the geographical du- direction has any implications here, but here's the descendants of Ham. Okay, what, what do we know about Ham? This is fascinating. 
Well, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 24, the Bible says, When Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, okay? So what happened is Noah's kids found Noah, and Noah was passed out, and Noah was naked, all right? You can read it. And uh, so Noah had exposed himself. And culturally, that was a big no-no. And so Ham saw it, and instead of saying, you know, I don't need to be looking at this. I'm not, I'll just pretend this didn't happen. Ham went around talking about it and bragging about what took place. And he went and told his brothers everything that happened, which was a big no-no. All right, it was a curse against what was to be taking place culturally. And so what Ham did is he saw a situation and he said, well, I'm just going to do what's logical. I mean, you know, dad shouldn't have put himself in that boat, so I'm going to tell everybody about it. So he did. Well, Noah woke up, knew what his youngest son had done, and he wasn't very happy about it. And so he said, cursed be Canaan, uh, which was the sons of Ham, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So here's this moral abandon that Ham exhibited here in what he did to his father. And out of that came the nation or the land of the Philistines, the Canaanites. All right? So we have exhibit A. All right, then what does he list next? Well, he lists the descendants to the east, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Well, where did the Moabites and Ammonites come from? Well, if you'll remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And Lot and his daughters are in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God says, you need to get out of town now. And you remember Lot's wife, she looked back, she didn't make it. And so Lot makes it, he escapes, and he gets out to the little town outside of the city. And so Lot and his, and his daughters are there. Well, they think they're the only survivors, okay? And so they decide, here's what we need to do. We need to procreate ourselves so that we can make sure that our lineage will continue, and so they took matters into their own hands. And, and the Bible says in Genesis 19.37 that the firstborn, the, the youngest daughter, and then the oldest daughter had uh, a, a child with their father. And it says the firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. Verse 38, the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites. So you see where Moab and the Ammonites came from? From again, a child of someone coming in and saying, you know what, I think I know how to fix this. It seems logical that all that raining brimstone over there on Sodom and Gomorrah has destroyed everyone. And so what we should do is we should, uh, purpose, or we should further, uh, I can't think of the word, we should further promote humanity by having our own kids. And so they do. And so we have the land of the Philistines. Now we have Moab, uh, the Moab and Ammonites. Then what does he list? Number three, he lists the, uh, the Cushites, which is, if you uh, study Scripture, it's Ethiopia. Where do the Cushites come from? The Cushites were from Cush, right? Which was who? He was the son of Ham. It all ties together. And so if you read Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6, you see that Cush is the son of Ham. And so we have the Moabites, the Ammonites, with the Cushites. Then we have the Philistines, the Canaanites. What do all of these have in common? Every one of them, every one of them are a direct 
result of people taking matters into their own hands and pursuing their own version of God. Pursuing their own version of God. Now, this is very convicting because what happens in our world is that we begin to pursue our own versions of God. And I'm not saying you have an idol in your corner of your house. What I'm saying is that you make decisions for God. That you do things and I do things in my life that I think is best, but it's not what God wants. Remember, God is not looking forward. He is looking back. And human reasoning, remember our point, it always ends with human results. And so what happened here is all of these people pursued their own versions of God. They took matters into their own hands instead of pursuing what God wanted. So I thought about this. Now, all these nations were created because of this, taking matters into our own hands, pursuing our own version of God. So I began to think about that. And here's the question that, that came to mind. What are the nations and the geography of my life that have been created by taking matters into my own hands? Right? What are the nations and the geography of my life? Right? In the span of my 43 years, what nations have I created? What territory, if you will, have I entered, have I created by me pursuing the version of God that I wanted? The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Canaanites. You see, every one of these above nations were a direct result of sin. See, we may think that we're helping God or we're doing something that will not concern God, but beware, God is taking notes. You see, he references the fact that the Moabites and the Ammonites taunted God's people. What does that mean? That means that God heard the words that they spoke to his people. You see, when we don't consult God, when our decisions are based on human understanding or based on human reasoning, we end up getting human results. You don't want human results. I don't want human results. Remember what I said earlier, that it takes a supernatural act of God for me to love the Lord uh, God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It takes a supernatural act of God for me to love my neighbor as myself. I don't need human reasoning. I need supernatural infusion from the Spirit of God. So I began to think about, well, there's a lot of places in Scripture where people took matters into their own hands and they got human results. How about Abraham and Hagar? What happened there? How about Lot and his daughters? I just gave you that example. What about David and Bathsheba? Right? Taking matters into his own hands. Then I started thinking about, well, what about David and Uriah? Right? Bathsheba's husband comes back from the war. And David said, let's put him on the front lines because of David's sin, right? How about doing human things that make human sense and getting human results ends up in the belly of a whale? Jonah. Right? I don't want to go to Nineveh, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so every time we pursue human reasoning, we get human results. Which is why the wisest man ever to live said this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. You see, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Ethiopians, the Cushites, all of these people pursued their own version of God. They're no different than us. They pursued their own version of God because they thought, here's what's best in this moment. And they didn't pursue what God wanted for them. And they got what they wanted for themselves. So what do we learn from this? Well, number one is that there's no sin that's too hidden that God is not going to root out. Think about it. It's been hundreds of years since that happened with Lot's daughters. All right, it's been hundreds of years since Ham did that to Noah. Right? We're generations past. And yet, what is God doing in Zephaniah? He said, I didn't forget. I know what you did to my people. And so he goes back and he says, by name, you did this, you did this, you did this. There's a record, right? He knows everything that happened. And so there is no sin that is too hidden for God. And so it's interesting here that what Zephaniah doesn't do is he doesn't call God's people to fight against this judgment. He doesn't say, hey, look, in spite of all this is going to happen, you need to do everything in your power to fight against these nations that are going to come against you. You need to go to talk to your national neighbors, and you need to rally the troops, and we need to get ready for this battle. That is not what he does. No, he doesn't say fight back against it. What he says is prepare to receive it. Prepare to receive it. You see, he says in verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the nation in the north and destroy Assyria, which is the northern nation. He will make Nineveh a desolation, which was the capital, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist at God. So God is looking back. He is not looking forward. Human reasoning results in human Human reasoning results, ends with human results. And then number three, God didn't stay where you met him. Now, a lot of people struggle with this, and I'm, I'm hoping to help you clear it up. Well, let's get some backstory first. Zephaniah is declaring wrath upon Nineveh, okay? Nineveh, we know because of the book of Jonah, experienced a great revival, right? Jonah went to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, but he did go. He went there. They got saved. He got mad. He went out and sat on a hill outside of the city. The Bible says in Jonah 3, 5, the people of Nineveh believed God, okay? So people got saved because Jonah went. God sent Jonah to go to Nineveh and declare the Word of God, and people were saved. So remember in week one, the nation of Judah under the leadership of Josiah experienced the same thing. Although some do believe, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that it was to be, it was only surface level repentance. So here's this great nation, okay, this great nation of Assyria, uh, the big city of Nineveh. Nineveh is this, the greatest city at the time. It had experienced a once amazing revival, and now all of a sudden, Nineveh is the target of God's wrath. Now, Nineveh, according to Isaiah, had a very arrogant king, 
And it was because Nineveh was believed to, to believe to be impenetrable. You could not penetrate Nineveh. Nineveh was uh, this city that was very carefree. Uh, the people that lived there felt like they lived in complete safety. Uh, it was a big city. Uh, the circumference of the city was about 60 miles. About 120,000 people lived in the city of Nineveh. In addition to a big extensive outer wall, there was an inner wall that was eight miles in circumference. It was 50 feet thick. Get this picture in your mind. And it had walls that were 100 feet high. 50 feet wide, 100 feet high. I mean, you're not going through that wall with a horse and carriage, right? It's not happening. So between these two, the outer wall and the inner wall, there was farmland that was used to support the population. So they had food that was protected. They had a 50-foot wide wall that was 100 feet high that kept anybody that got past the first wall wasn't getting past the second wall. So they had all of this inner uh, safety and belief in, in themselves. And so Nineveh's claim, as they said and Zephaniah quoted, I am and there, was, there is no one else, it was an idle boast. And so for approximately 200 years, Nineveh was superior in strength to any other city of her time. Had a great run. And so here's Nineveh, okay? Nineveh is un undefeated. No one can beat them. No one can penetrate their walls. And so the Medes and the Babylonians decided we should attack Nineveh. Now remember, Nineveh can't be beat. Well, through the city of Nineveh ran the Tigris River, okay? And so Nineveh is attacked by the Babylonians and the Medes, and they had no success whatsoever until the Tigris River came to flood stage, and it overflowed the banks of the river. And guess what happens to sun-dried bricks when they get wet? Well, that 50-foot wall becomes 50 foot of liquid, right? And so all of a sudden, their walls literally began to liquefy because of the overflowing waters from the Tigris River. And so they began to implode from within because they thought we can never be beat. Well, when the wall became breached, guess what? Guess who came in? The Medes and the Babylonians. And so they came in and they overran the city of Nineveh and they completely destroyed the nation of the city of Nineveh. I mean, utterly destroyed Nineveh. Nineveh was undiscovered again until the 1800s. Now, this is B.C. when this is happening. And it took till the 1800s for Nineveh to be rediscovered. You see, what Nineveh had done is began to believe in their own belief system. That I've got this wall around me, and I'm good, and I'm going to pursue the version of God that I want. Now, remember, this is Nineveh. Don't forget, this is Nineveh that good old Jonah went to. And Jonah stood up and proclaimed the word of God. And the Ninevite says, yes, we believe. Jonah 3, 5, they believed in God. And so here's the Ninevites living on this experience of what God did. And they took God's giving and God's graciousness and God's goodness to believe that it was because they were good. 
And so they began to fortify themselves, not based on believing that God would protect them, but based on believing that they could protect themselves. So why do I say that God may not be where you met him? That God didn't stay where you met him? Why did I say that? You see, many times I've heard people reference over and over and over an experience that they had with God sometime in the past that they longed to recreate. That there's this euphoric moment that took place in your life. And I'm not saying that, you know, that it didn't happen. I'm saying that it did happen. That you had this moment, maybe you were in a church service, maybe it was a certain preacher, maybe it was a song, maybe it was a, I don't know what it was, a concert, whatever it was. And we, I've heard this so many times, that we have these moments in our life and we think if I could just go back to that moment, then I could be where God is. That's the experience that I want to recreate in my own heart. I remember when God spoke to me that first time. I remember when God saved me. I remember when that song was sung or that sermon was preached or whatever. And we have these moments in our mind, and we say, that's where God is. If I could just go back there to that moment. Well, can I suggest to you this evening, you see, it's though we, we believe that God is only able to operate in very specific ways repeatable confines. Can I suggest to you tonight that God was there, but now God is here? Can I suggest to you, see, the big thing in legalism, legalism is when did you get saved? Time and date, when did you get saved? When did you get saved? When did you get saved? What day did you get saved? And, and even I, you hear it oftentimes, people say, oh, I got saved so-and-so, so-and-so. You know, for me, I got saved February the 4th of 1998, so last Friday was 24 years, right? Praise the Lord. And so I can look back and say, that's when God saved me. But listen, the evidence of my salvation has absolutely nothing to do with where I was or the day it happened. The proof of my salvation is today that God is working in my life today, that God redeemed me then, and I was a dirty, rotten sinner then, and God is still redeeming me today. Right? Amen. Come on. I need some Christians in the room. Like God is still moving today. So many times we look back and we say, oh, if I could just go back, if I could get that small group together again, or if I could hear that preacher preach again, or whatever, you fill in the blank. But listen, it wasn't a man who saved you, and it wasn't a place because he did it. It was because he is God. And you're saved today not because you were at the right place at the right time, but because he found you where you were and he rescued you. And he's just as capable of working in your life today as he was the very day he redeemed you. Stop believing that you've got to recreate some moment in your life. If you read the Gospels, what you always read about Jesus is that he was going here and he was healing this person and he got in the boat and he went up on the mountain to pray. Over and over and over and over again, God is moving. That is what God does. He doesn't sit around on a throne and wait for people to come to him. He is a pursuing God. And so often in our lives, we limit God by saying, He is only where I met Him. And if I could just go back to where I met Him, then I would be okay. That is not true. That is not true. 
Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but He is not in the same place. Judah was being warned to stop looking to an experience with God or a place for God. Nineveh is an example of that. The great revival that took place in Nineveh, and yet Nineveh ceased to exist. You see, they were being encouraged, rather, to seek after the person of God. You see, when we seek after experiences, we become just like Lot's daughters. We become just like Ham. We become just like Cush. We're relying on ourselves, our situations, and we're not relying on God. So I have an application and a result for you. So what's the application? Well, it's very simple. In, in, verse, uh, in chapter, three, uh, chapter 2, rather, he says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden, which remember that's what Zephaniah means, Yahweh hides, on the day of the anger of the Lord. And so what's our takeaway? Well, it's very simple. Seek the Lord. Seek God. I mean, it's straight from Zephaniah, word for word. Zephaniah said, well, how do we fix all this? We seek God. God is constantly moving. He is constantly at work. And seeking God is the only way to find Him. You see, in the Gospels, what does He say? Seek and you will find. Knock and I will answer. Right? When we seek Him with all of our hearts. God, God doesn't say, he, he says, seek me. I mean, well, I could talk about this for a long time. Seek me. That means pursue me. To seek God. He says, Zephaniah says, seek God. Well, the, in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, Isaiah says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. From the Old Testament prophecies to the New Testament gospel, it is what? Seek God. The second thing that he says, again, it's right there in the passage, is to seek God. The Lord, number two, seek righteousness. Seek righteousness. Very simple, right? And then the third thing, and then we'll wrap them together, is to what? Seek humility. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Now, humility is very obvious. Nineveh, you're, you're not impenetrable. You can be penetrated, and you were. Any, anything can happen to anybody, anybody's life. Anything can happen right? The safety only uh, resides in who our Father is, and that's God the Father. So, seeking the Lord. So, he says, seek righteousness, seek humility. This righteousness and humility that he references, what are they a result of? Seeking the Lord, right? Matthew 6, seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then what happens? All these things will be added to you, right? If we seek God first, then righteousness and humility are the logical things that follow. And so the result is, for God's people, is that God says that He would shelter His people. It says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. They may be hidden. So the result 
is that God would shelter His people. And so, Zephaniah is declaring something Judah didn't want to hear, but Judah needed to hear. Zephaniah is telling us a lot of things about God, that God is looking back. He already knows what's happening. That if we do depend upon our human reasoning and we take matters into our own hands and to pursue our own versions of God, we end up with our own versions of God. And nations and the geography of our life that shouldn't be there, the 1040 window comes from Abraham and Hagar and, uh, you know, part of that lineage. That's why the, the 1040 longitude and latitude window exists in missions is because that's the places in the table of nations in Genesis 11 that parted from God. If you read those nations and you apply that map to today, that's where they're at. It's people pursuing their own versions of God. And then instead of trying, and the reason people don't do that is because they don't want to seek after God. Because it takes work to pursue God, to find out where God's working and go join Him. That's how I ended up at Michael Memorial. Is God was working here and I visited Michael Memorial and I said, God's working. I want to be wherever God is. He's there. That's where I'm going. Hopefully that's why you're here, right? And so when we heed God's warning, what results happen for us is just a couple of things as we leave this afternoon. What, what happens? Well, heeding God's warning results in, number one, a new identity. A new identity. When I met God, God changed me. When you met God, God changed you. We sing songs, I'm not who I was, right? Because old things pass away, all things become new. I get a new identity. I am now a child of God, right? I'm a child of God because of what God did. And so I have a new identity in Christ, and that's who I am. Because of whose I am, right? So I have a new identity. So when, when the nation of Judah heeded the warnings that Zephaniah gave, so both present Zephaniah for Judah and application today for us, when they heeded that warning, it resulted in a new identity. What was the new identity for the nation of Israel? They would be a remnant that God would preserve. And in 1948, the nation of Israel would be reinstituted as a nation. God did what? He preserved his remnant. So they got a new identity. Number two, for them and for us, they got a new location. Judah ceased to exist. The Babylonians invaded and took over, took them into captivity. And so they, they, they had a new location. But what the Bible says in Zephaniah is that the things that used to be great cities have now become pasture lands for what? For my people to graze. So now they had all of the belongings of God that God said, here, I'm giving what they once thought was a fortified city to you to be a blessing. So a new identity, a new location, and last but not least, they were given, and we certainly have, a renewed spiritual experience when we heed the warnings of God. What is that renewed spiritual experience? Well, we experience the care and the presence of our God and Father, Jesus Christ, right? That we're able to experience the love that God gives us, that we're able to, to, to live in the trust of who God is, knowing that the future has already been determined. And so my encouragement for us tonight is to seek the Lord while He may be found, that we would be intent on not pursuing our own versions of God because, let's be honest, it's easy to do that, but that we would diligently pursue God, that we would seek Him 
And as he promises that we will find him when we seek him with all of our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for the warnings of Zephaniah. That a warning that you give us is a warning given in love.